ask that you uh, turn in your Bibles to Philippians uh, chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Last time we looked at Philippians 1, verses 27 to 30, and I noted there that uh, there was a shift in what Paul was addressing, starting in verse 27. And so today we're going to read from uh, Philippians 1, 27 through uh, Philippians 2, 11. We're not going to cover all of, of uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Uh, there have been entire books uh, written on that. And uh, I, I did not think I would be that ambitious, but we will uh, read through the end of verse 11. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the, faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation and that from God. But it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. And our focus is on verses 1 through 4. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being, uh, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's ask for the Lord's help now. Father in heaven, as we come to this text, we come to two things that you love dearly, unity and humility, and we come to two things that all the demons in hell hate. Lord, because we know that Satan loves pride, Satan loves disunity in your church. And so as we come to these words, Lord, we can expect, even here now this morning, conflict. We can expect that Satan will not uh, rest easy. He will not be idle, but he will be working and stirring. And Lord, we pray that you would make us wise to resist his temptations, that you would help us to stand firm that, Lord, you would help us to see Jesus more clearly, that we might grow down in humility after his example, that we would be looking to him, that we would be forgetting about ourselves so that we might glorify Jesus and be a blessing to one another. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. 
How self-serving. That's what you might have thought when you walked into church this morning, grabbed a bulletin from one of the greeters, and read the sermon title, How to Have a Happy Pastor. When the topic of the sermon outline uh, came up this week in the office, Andrew, our intern, uh, quipped that with a title like that, my outline would be pretty simple. Coffee, donuts, maybe a good theological book thrown in there. But before you get the wrong impression, let me explain uh, myself. I've, I've titled the message this morning, How to Have a Happy Pastor, because that's the stress of the text that we uh, come to. In the original language, these four verses exist as a single sentence with one main verb. And it's an imperative verb, a, a verb of command, found at the beginning of verse 2. Complete. Complete my joy, or fill up my joy to the brim. The Apostle Paul, who is writing to a church that he helped start, had just told the Philippians in the preceding chapter that to live as citizens worthy of uh, their heavenly citizenship, that these Christians should demonstrate uh, unity and a courage in the face of opposition to the gospel. And now Paul is going to drill down on one of these aspects of living in light of the gospel, and he says, Dear ones, uh, I know that you love me, and you know that I love you too. And if you want to max out my joy, if you want to bring it to completion, then here's what you can do. Now, Paul is writing to the Philippians as an apostle, a, spe a special messenger of God. As such, he's got a unique role in God's plan. Your pastors are not apostles. That office no longer exists. But Paul, like us, was still very much a pastor. And what's more, Paul is writing this letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so what we have in these verses is not the self-serving request of a sinful man. What we're given here is not only the expression of what would make pastors like Paul, like me, like any of your pastors here happy, but we get insight into what delights God himself. And so while I have no qualms about saying that this is a message about how to make Paul and how to make your pastors here happy, it's ultimately, I hope you'll see, a message about what is most pleasing to God. What is it that can complete Pastor Paul's joy even while he's sitting in chains in a Roman prison? Unity in the Spirit. Unity in the church built on the foundation of humble, sacrificial service is what will complete the apostles' joy. And we're able to pursue unity through humility because of the comforts that have come to us that we have received in Christ through the gospel. And so God's purpose for Harvest Church in these verses then is that we would be motivated to grow down in humility in order that we might exemplify or grow in our exhibition of unity. But if God's intended aim here is to have us grow in unity through humility, we'll need to be clear on how God understands these two things, how God understands unity and humility, because both of these concepts can be easily misunderstood or abused. To some, they sound like kumbaya vocabulary, right? They're the sort of fuzzy, indistinct words that invite compromise, we may be concerned that unity is an excuse to gloss over real substantial differences in conviction, as was the experience, for example, when uh, the OPC was founded in the 1920s. 
We might react against talk of unity because we're worried that it's just a discussion stopper. Humility also can be misunderstood. We may come to any talk of humility with concerns that to be humble would mean to allow other people to walk all over us or mistreat us. Or that to be humble is to grovel, O wretched worm that I am. Sometimes humility is proposed to be the commitment to making no commitments, to avoid making any claim about being certain about anything at all. Carl Sagan, agnostic astronomer, rhetorically suggested that to claim to believe that the Bible is infallibly true is to be filled with great pride. But true humility is to be found in the scientist who looks at the universe with an open mind and accepts whatever the universe has to teach us. Now, of course, if to believe anything with certainty is pride, Sagan will eventually fall by his own argument. It's not uh, humility and conviction don't stand at, at odds with each other. I think of the Apostle Paul when he's speaking to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. Uh, He reminds them of his time with them and how with tears and humility uh, he served them, not shrinking back in anything. So humility and conviction can equally be found in the same person. But for our purposes, it's worth noting that there's a great deal of confusion about unity and humility. And so we've got work to do to understand what is it that God, through Paul, is saying to us. So here's our path forward in the message this morning. We're going to look at our text out of order. First, we're going to look at Paul's call to unity, answering the question, what does it mean to pursue unity? We'll do this by looking at verse 2. Secondly, we'll look at humility as a necessary ingredient for unity by looking at verses 3 and 4. And then finally, we'll consider comforts for unity by returning back to verse 1. So first, a call to unity. This is what would complete the Apostle Paul's joy. For the Philippians to be of the same mind, having the same love, uh, being in full accord and of one mind. And we need to remember, Paul is not some idle chatterbox. He doesn't waste words. He issues this call to unity because there was, for some reason, uh, reason to be concerned about the relationships Uh, in the Philippian church. And while the Philippian church was not like the church at Corinth, which was so obviously divided into personality-based factions, it must have been the case that something was threatening the unity uh, of the church at Philippi. Perhaps Paul had heard uh, uh, reports of murmuring and complaining in the church. A whisper here, conflict there, Maybe Paul had in mind the conflict between Judea and Syntyche, a conflict that was so serious that Paul would mention these two women by name later in the letter, something that he's not quick normally to do. Whatever the case, Paul has the sense that this church, whom he deeply loves, is not all on the same page. And so he calls them to unity, a unity of both heart and mind. Now, to understand what this unity is, let's start by clarifying what Paul does not mean. Unity does not require that everyone in the church must have the same process of thought. God has created us uh, wonderfully uh, diverse in terms of our personalities and ways of thinking. So just 
Think, for example, of the different ways that you and your friends or you and your spouse might order dinner at the restaurant. Okay, some of you are logically working your way through, okay, what did I have for dinner last time? Uh, how much money is this going to cost? How can I share the various meals at the table to sample a little bit of everything? And then the other person is just saying, I just sort of feel like lasagna today. Right? Uh, that, that's our experience sometimes. Some of us are, are linear thinkers. Others of us are lateral thinkers. Some of us, if you uh, go in for the personality test thing, are ISTJs. Give us a job and we'll do it. Others are ENFPs and ESTPs. We're different. We're wonderfully, gloriously different. Unity also does not require that we share the same preferences or purposes or gifts. Some people in the church can like the New York Yankees, and they can be wrong about that. As to purposes, God assigned that Paul would be an apostle to the Gentiles, and Peter an apostle to the circumcised. We have different job assignments. Though we're one body, Paul says in Philippians 12:4, not all the members of the body have the same function. Some are gifted to teach. Others are, are, are especially gifted in generosity. Others in leading in acts of mercy. Nor is Paul insisting upon a mindless conformity of thought in his call to unity. We need only to consider how Paul deals with issues of conscience elsewhere, like in Romans 14, or later in this letter, in chapter 3, there's an issue that Paul uh, believes that there are those in the church who are mistaken on, they're out of step with Paul on, and though he believes these uh, brothers and sisters are mistaken, he trusts that God is going to bring them to a right way of thinking eventually. But what does unity look like? Well, first, it consists of a unity of mind, being of the same mind, being of one mind. It's repeated uh, in verse 2. This involves having a, a similar attitudes and convictions about the world in matters of fundamental importance. Although it's hard to translate into English, commentator Dennis Johnson admits our word think or the idea of have a certain mind or mindset or attitude is a close equivalent. The same word is used in verse 5 to speak of the outlook that Jesus exemplified and which we in turn are to possess. We know from elsewhere in scripture that fundamental to unity is truth. A shared conviction about who God is and who we are as creatures who bear his image. We need to be agreed upon the problem, which is sin, and what the solution is, salvation through Christ. Because there's a, a fundamental antithesis that God has established that runs through all of mankind, between those who are recipients of his grace and those who are objects of his wrath, between those who are in rebellion against God and to those who have been made genuine worshipers of God. It's only by, uh, through grace, being brought into Christ's kingdom, being made citizens there, that we come to belong to this one body, to share in the same Holy Spirit, to confess the same faith, to receive the one baptism, and to worship the one God and Father of all. We're set apart together in the truth, and we need to have shared convictions about the gospel and our responsibilities in light of the gospel. But the unity which Paul longs to see is also a unity of heart or affection. This we see from the two middle phrases, having the same love and being in full accord. The unity which God desires for the church is not only to believe the same things and to be engaged in the same mission, 
It's not only a matter of subscribing to the same doctrinal statement. The unity which brings this pastor joy is a unity of mind and heart, of thinking and feeling, of truth and brotherly love. The picture in mind here is like the idea of soulmates, kindred spirits. This is the emphasis or the expectation that we see running throughout the New Testament. Romans 12.10, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. 1 Peter 1.22, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. 1 John 3.14, we know that we have passed out from death into life because we love the brothers. So we might think of, of a unity of, of mind or a unity of outlook as facing the same direction. We're like passengers seated on, uh, seated on a bus, headed in the same direction. But our unity is deeper than that. We need to genuinely love the people who are on the bus with us, if we can use that illustration. Right? It's, it's this sense where we walk away from uh, services together on Sunday, prayer meeting on Wednesday, small group meeting, and we think, I love these people. So how does this unity of heart and mind come to a tangible, observable expression in the church? Well, understand what the end result looks like. We need to consider, how is this unity cultivated in the church? That's what we see in verses 3 and 4. So if you look uh, at these verses, you'll notice that Paul has a pair of not buts. Do not do this, but do this. And the emphasis is placed on the positive statements counting others more significant than yourselves, looking to the interests of others. And the question that we need to ask as students of the Bible is, why does Paul insert these verses here? Why place this call uh, to humility right after his appeal to be of one heart and mind? Well, it's because humility is a necessary ingredient for true Christian unity. There will be no true, no lasting unity where carnal pride is left unchecked. Now, Paul's concern in these verses is against selfish ambition, conceit, and self-interest. These are three closely related concepts. Selfish ambition refers to a resentfulness, a jealousy, rivalry. It carries with it the sense of, of puffing oneself up or to be engaged in advancing one's own cause. We saw this in chapter 1, where Paul spoke of these preachers who pr uh, proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition. It's the person who's eagerly seeking the privilege of place. Notably, the same word is used in James 3, 14 to 16. James says plainly that selfish ambition is not of the wisdom that comes from, uh, down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic, for where jealousy and selfish ambition, there's our word, exist, there will be disorder or disruption or chaos or disunity in every vile practice. Selfish ambition tears at the fabric of unity. Now closely related is the idea of conceit or vanity or vainglory, as the KJV puts it. It's to have this view of yourself that doesn't align with reality. It's a baseless glory and boasting. It's an inflated view of oneself. And in verse 4, Paul warns against being driven by self-concern or self-interest. Now, Paul is not saying that we should give no regard to our own well-being. 
It's appropriate uh, to take uh, care of ourselves, to realize uh, that we are finite creatures, dependent creatures. We need food and rest and sleep uh, and relationships. We need time in God's Word. But Paul's concern here is for the man or woman who is driven by self-interest. They're dominated by self-centeredness. This doesn't mean that they'll never do anything good or nice for others, but deep down, their acts of service are motivated by what this will do for them, for their reputation, for their identity, and for their cause. So I wonder, does that sound familiar? Is this you? Can't help but holding this text up and seeing myself in it. Because when I'm confronted with these verses, my reaction is, God, help me, okay? Uh, pride is slippier, sli- uh, more slippery, it's, it's trickier, it's more deceitful than I thought. We can easily mistake pride as being the sin of the self-confident, of the cool kids, and not the sin of the self-interested. We might think wrongly, I'm too ordinary to be proud. Well, C.S. Lewis described well the slipperiness of pride, his besetting sin, as he said, as he wrote to a friend about his daily periods of reflection. So he'd think on these things. And he said, What worries me much more is pride. Sitting by, watching the rising thoughts, he's speaking of his own thoughts, to break their necks as they pop up, one learns to know the sorts of thoughts that do come. And, will you believe it, one out of every three is a thought of self-admiration. When everything else fails, having had its neck broken, up comes the thought, what an admirable, admirable fellow I am to have broken their necks. I catch myself posturing before the mirror, so to speak, all day long. I pretend I'm carefully thinking out what to say to my next pupil, for his good, of course, and then suddenly realize that I'm thinking how frightfully clever I'm going to be and how he will admire me. I pretend I am remembering an evening of good fellowship and really friendly and charitable spirit. And all the time I'm really remembering how good a fellow I am and how well I talked. And then, when you force yourself to stop it, you admire yourself for doing that. It's like fighting the hydra. You remember when you cut off one head, another grew. There seems to be no end of it. Depth under depth of self-love and self-admiration. For Paul, the many-headed hydra of pride is concerning, not only because it's an offense against God, which it is. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. But it's concerning for the practical reason that the self-concern of pride destroys unity. Pride is like hydrochloric acid to unity in the church. Quoting Lewis again, he says that pride is essentially competitive. Pride is a winner-take-all vice. A proud man cannot delight in his wife's triumphs if it means that she has outshone him. And to make matters worse, our pride rubs up against the pride of others so that we're two people insistent upon getting our way and having our personal need met. My pride means that I prioritize my self-interest so that when my self-interest and your self-interest clash, what do we have? War, conflict, feuding, disunity. Because it's no longer a matter 
of me not winning the vote or me not getting my way or not having the wisdom uh, of my opinion recognized. It's not just that. You've crossed me, and it's going to cost you. Amid the wreckage of thousands of church splits and closures throughout history, you'll find this to be true, that pride kills churches. And so we would be fooling ourselves if we did not think that this could happen here at Harvest Church. So we must keep close watch of ourselves. The alternative to pride is humility. Now, the Bible says a lot about humility, and we're only going to be skimming the surface of its teaching here. Next time, Lord willing, we'll look at the example of humility par excellence from verses 11 to, uh, 5 to 11. But what we must say today, though, is that humility, in contrast to pride, is others-oriented. If my pride is preoccupied with me, even viewing others in terms of what they do for me, humility will look like a self-forgetfulness and a concern for other people. Just as we can wrongly assume that pride is the sin of the confident, so we can also err by equating humility with a lack of confidence or habits of self-deprecation. One more time, Lewis, uh, in a well-known passage from his chapter, The Great Sin in Mere Christianity, wrote, Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, swarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably all that you will think about him is that he seems a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. To grow in the humility that's a necessary ingredient for unity in the church means that we need to turn the camera of our lives outward toward others. In our thinking, in our engagement with the world, we've been freed to focus. Uh, We've been freed from being the focus uh, uh, of, of everything in our lives. Not every conversation needs to be about us or needs to meet some personal need. Not every interaction needs to be about what you think about me. Do you think that I'm clever enough, funny enough, that I'm doing a good enough job, that I'm holy enough? Humility is a freedom from excessive self-concern. Because not everything is about me, I'm free to enter into relationships with the posture of a true servant. So whether it be at church or at home or at work, The proud man places the emphasis on what others are doing for him or to him or against him. The humble man, not distracted by himself, is seeking out what he can do for others. Now, what does this mean for our life together as a church in in the specifics? Well, let me give a couple of snapshots just to illustrate what this could look like. College students, I'm going to start with you because you know that I love you. When you're 18, 19, uh, 20, it's easy to get distracted with yourself. Okay, I speak from personal experience. After all, you're making a really big, uh, significant, life-altering choices about school, about work, about relationships, and it all feels so urgent. And it's easy to forget to focus on anyone other than yourselves, to, be, uh, to not actively seek out ways, how do, how do I participate in the life of the local church? 
and serve others. Well, growing in humility looks like coming to a recognition that life does not begin and end with how you do in first-year chemistry, to name just one example. More broadly, a church characterized by humility will see growing participation in the ministry of its members. Sometimes said, right, we can uh, come to church with a consumer mindset. If you give me the songs that I want and the quality of preaching that I'm looking for and the programs that I want, then I'll show up. Okay, that's been told to me. That's not of the Spirit. Or if you've been wounded or offended by something in church, okay, I've I've seen it, I've felt it, unfortunately, uh, I've been responsible for it, right? Those hurts can be real and they should be dealt with, but we can get so fixated at looking down at the hurt, how we've been wronged, that we never end up turning to look out beyond ourselves. As God humbles us as a congregation, there will be a growing attitude of service. We'll be thinking, who can I read my Bible with? Who can I pray for and with? Who can I call up to encourage? It's going to look like a a reorientation of how we think about our time in the foyer after the service. When we think, well, who can I encourage? Who can I comfort? Who, Who can I welcome? laying aside maybe what I'd like to do uh, to be hospitable to others. Likewise, as God grows us individually in humility, it will transform the way that we see our relationships. Husbands, you will find a growing freedom to tenderly serve your wives, to lay down your life for her. Wives, you'll delight to esteem and honor and, and, and see your husband recognized Parents, humility looks like being willing to put aside our own interests for the sake of our children. That's good to remember when you're uh, changing diapers or you're dealing with snarky teenagers. Parenting is an opportunity to grow in the exercise of humility. In the absence of humility, pride will drive holes in the fellowship of the church. It's why in numerous places in the New Testament where unity is mentioned, humility is urged and pride is warned against. Romans 12, 16, Paul says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Or Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 3, a famous passage on unity. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another, eager to maintain the unity, there's the pairing again, of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Or 1 Peter 3.8, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. So strive for humility that you may grow in unity. But this is much easier said than done, isn't it, right? After all, uh, pride is that many-headed hydra that Lewis talked about. So how, how do we uh, pursue the, the humility that leads to unity? Well, this leads us back to verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... 
Paul appeals to the Philippians to pursue unity on the basis of one reality represented in these four phrases. And it's the reality of the the experience of God's overwhelming love in the gospel. Paul says, if, not because he's questioning whether these things in verse 1 exist, He's using rhetorical advice, like I might say to my kids, if I'm your dad, you can trust me and you can jump, right? It's obvious that I'm their dad and that they should respond appropriately. Well, similarly, we see uh, all across Paul's letters that he's absolutely convinced that there's true comfort to be found in the God of the gospel. And so we can, we can understand verse 1 uh, as beginning since. Since you have encouragement or consolation in Jesus, the Son of God, who took on human flesh, who lived a life without sin, and who laid down his life for you so that you might be reconciled to God. Since you have comfort in the love of God, demonstrated in the fact that he loved you and sent his only Son into the world so that you might live through him. Since you have fellowship with God by his Holy Spirit, who lives in every believer and through whom we have access to the Father. Since you have received God's affection, his eager tenderness toward you, and his mercy is upon you, then, then, Paul says, complete my joy, pursue unity with one another. Paul makes his appeal for unity on the basis of the tidal wave of divine comfort and love which washes over us in the gospel. And I think he appeals to the Philippians on the basis of divine comfort, particularly because when we receive this sort of love freely given, it frees us to forget about ourselves. Because what is it that turns us to drive inward? To depend upon our own efforts and conniving and assertiveness to get what we want. To insist upon our own way. Is it not, at least in part, deep down a fearfulness that if I don't look out for me, no one else will. More fundamentally, it's that we don't trust that God is good and that he will give us what we need. And because God won't, I must. And so I'm going to look out for my own interests. I'm going to push and I'm going to jostle my way into getting the recognition I desire and the thing that I need and whatever else it is. Behind the proud, self-concern, that erodes the unity in the church, there is a heart that has come to doubt that God loves us and cares for us. And the result is a preoccupation with ourselves that distracts us from loving the people around us and seeing them as anything other than objects to be used and obstacles to get around. And so Paul intends to shatter the faithless, fearful lie that our proud self-concern is rooted in by overwhelming us with the greatest love in the universe. When it comes to pride, the only lasting remedy, the only remedy that will dig down uh, deep to the very bottom and begin to, to grab pride by the roots is divine love. To oust unity-destroying pride, we must receive afresh the cheer and consolation of God's love for us in Jesus to experience the depth of God's love and his mercy for us, and to enjoy the fellowship that we now have with God by his Holy Spirit, all of which is offered to needy, proud people like you and me 
in the gospel. For in the gospel, we can say that if God would not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not graciously give us all things? Romans 8.32 Because if God loves you like that, you can trust him to take care of you. And trusting that he will take care of you, you'll be free to care for others, to adopt a posture of humility. You can forget about promoting yourself and protecting yourself, but resting in God's love, you can then humbly and sacrificially serve other people. And that's an environment in which true, lasting unity in the church will flourish. So friends, do you want to have a happy pastor? Much more importantly, do you want our life together as a church to be pleasing to God? Pursue unity. And to pursue unity, slay pride. And to slay pride, to taste divine love as it's offered to us in Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Father, behold, the psalmist says how good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. And Father, we want to enjoy more of the unity which is ours in Christ by the Spirit, to be able to confess from personal experience the joy of belonging, the joy of community, the joy of fellowship that we share with one another in Jesus. Lord, we thank you for the ways in which we taste unity now already as a church body. Imperfectly, yes. But we can experience, in part, the sweetness of fellowship now. We do it in our worship. We do it in our gathering together for prayer, in our conversations afterward, in our service uh, uh, to and with each other. We pray, Lord, that you would forgive us for where we have exhibited attitudes of carnal pride. We admit, Lord, that we are so easily deceived and, and so willingly uh, we turn our attention to ourselves. And this is the wisdom of hell. And Lord, we pray that you would make us wise, that you would free us from this gross self-deception, that you would give us a greater awareness of where and when we are drawn in pride, to think of ourselves inordinately, excessively. We pray, Lord, that you would pour your love into our hearts in fresh ways, that we might enjoy again today a fresh sense of the comforts which come to us in the gospel and that that might free us to forget about ourselves and to turn in humility to our brother and sister and to pursue a unity that is pleasing in your sight. We so desperately need your help, and so we pray that you would give it. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you please stand with me as we sing our song of response, Blessed Be the Tie That Binds. <laughs>